Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. We have um, what's probably going to turn into just a monster-sized um, show this evening. Uh, so here's what we have coming up later on. Uh, later on, we're going to do something we've never done before, which is we're going to talk about a comic book. We are going to review The Crow, Pestilence, um, which was penned by Frank Bill. I don't think you did the drawing on it, um, but I'm pretty sure all the words in the story are his. So we're going to cover that later. And it's been a while since we've done a movie review. Yeah, uh, yeah since we talked to the boys at uh, This Is Horror about uh, uh, the Lords of Salem. Yep. So uh, we're bringing it. Uh, we're bringing it back indie this time, um, kind of to our roots of uh, film review, and we are going to be talking about Pablo de Stair's A Public Ransom, which, even though it's a film, it's about a writer, so it kind of fits, right? Yeah, it's kind of book book related. Yeah. But before we do that, um, we have a very exciting interview that we mentioned on the last show. All the stars lined up properly, and Jeff Vandermeer is going to be joining us here in just a few moments. That's right. Before we get him on, just a little bit about him. This is his bio that we pulled from um, his publisher's website, um, the FSG Originals website. Jeff Vandermeer is an award-winning novelist and editor. His fiction has been translated into 20 languages and has appeared in the Library of America's American Fantastic Tales and multiple Year's Best anthologies. He writes nonfiction for the Washington Post, the New York Times Book Review, the Los Angeles Times, and The Guardian, among others. He grew up in the Fiji Islands and now lives in Tallahassee, Florida with his wife. Jeff, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule, apparently very late at night where you are, <laughs> to um, to come on and talk to us. <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on here. All right, so typically when we have an author on after uh, having reviewed one of their books, we give we like to give them a shot right in the beginning to uh, to to describe their book in their own words. So we talked about Annihilation. Do you have like a quick mm-hmm. sum up you give when people ask you what it's about? Right. Well, um, uh, there have been several interpretations, and I think that the novel has a certain amount of ambiguity to it that that kind of invites that. So uh, one reviewer thought it was uh, kind of a Christ analogy, uh, which it isn't. Another <laughs> reviewer thought it was an uh, analogy for the creative process, which it isn't. Uh, what it is is uh, basically an account of this expedition into an area that's been closed off to the rest of the world for about 30 years. And this place has been dubbed Area X by the Southern Reach, the secret agency that keeps sending the expeditions in. And over 30 years, they've, they've had very little success in figuring out what's, what's going on there. In fact, most of the expeditions have been spectacularly unsuccessful to the point of a lot of them not returning. And uh, this is the account of the 12th expedition, and it's told kind of as a series of journal entries by the biologist who's attached to this uh, four-woman expedition. Uh, and uh, I say kind of because uh, you find out at a certain point they just had a chance to kind of revise and gather her thoughts. So it's not quite a, a day-by-day account. Uh, but basically it's the account of this this mission into Area X trying to figure out what's going on. And, and part of the difficulty is that it's kind of a pristine wilderness. Um, What's actually happening is, uh, you know, any heavy metals or any kind of pollution is kind of receding, and um, and and it's just kind of reverting to the state it was in before, with some kind of strange anomalies. Like there's some weird stuff happening in the abandoned lighthouse, and there's a a tower going into the ground that um, that seems to be filled with. <laughs> 
some 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 rather strange uh, things. And uh, there's a moaning creature out in the reeds, which is never a good sign, um, as far as I'm concerned. Talking about people's weird interpretations, I don't know. You, I know you listened at least to parts of the uh, inter- the review we did, um, and we talked a little bit about Amazon reviews. And I don't want to take you down that road because talking to authors about their you know the reviews and stuff is always kind of awkward, but. Um, one person basically at one point said something to the effect of um, because there weren't character names, they were just called like the mm. biologists and everything. Yeah, yeah. They were like, it's a big allegory, like warning and everything. So <laughs> I was like, uh, <laughs> I don't even have a question there. Just like you saying that made me think, um, A, that, you know, interpretations can go completely insane. But B, there's so often that we've been told by people that, you know, we interview that we've seen stuff in their in their book that they didn't know was there, so right. Yeah, I mean, right. Well, I mean, the the author isn't going to know everything. If you write kind of instinctually, if you write so the images are kind of charged, like they have a resonance, the, the writer's not going to always be completely in control of that. And you don't want to be because otherwise it's kind of like obvious or forced. But let me tell you about another another story, which is that I once had a story where it changed from first to third person. And I had a red rose in the lapel of the character, uh, character's suit, so that you would know when it switched from first to third person that this was the same character. And uh, a whole class of high school students studied this story and got weeks and weeks of their English teacher telling them that the rose was an allegory from the Middle Ages. Uh, and, and they studied the symbolism of the rose. They were tested on it. And then I was brought in and I said, the rose is just stage business to tell you that it's the same character. And there was kind of a student revolt, and the teachers hated me, and I had to, I had to actually recant <laughs> uh, when I spoke to the next class <laughs> because they'd already been tested on it, so it must have been true. And I say that because to some extent when you have a story and you put it out in the world, the readers get to interpret it however they like. Uh, but there's also a question of what's factual and what's not, and, and in this case, the expedition uh, doesn't use names uh, because early expeditions that used names and used modern communication uh, technology uh, suffered much worse <coughs> than subsequent expeditions that uh, did not use these things, including the names. And and uh, and so it's kind of like Area X has been hacking uh, these expeditions uh, that used names and used uh, modern technology. So on a very practical level. That's that's why there are no names, and certainly you know it's valid to still see allegorical elements, uh, but but there was actually this practical reason behind it that's actually stated in the book. Uh, so so the ones that are like kind of like riffing off of the no names being allegories, and the biologist stands for I don't know what. I mean you know it's like. Like I was joking the other day to somebody, it's like, well, I don't know how the biologist could actually be a Christ figure because the biologist is actually a, gir- a giraffe, you know. And it's like, you know, it's it, and they're all literally wildlife animals. They're 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 they're, they're you know they're in a zoo or something, you know. It's like there's all kinds of uh, <laughs> silliness there because I don't have physical descriptions of any of them, so they could be anything, I suppose. But there are other stories like uh, Kafka has a story called In the Penal Colony, where there's a surveyor, not a surveyor, a uh, explorer, and those characters probably do stand. For like Western civilization and things like that, but but that's not really what I was going for here. See, and that's and I have to agree with something you said earlier. At least, kind of tag on to. I'm a big fan of the factual. You know, I, I want to know exactly what happened in the story, so I look for allegory a lot less than apparently some people Amazon do. Um, simply because I just want to know the story and I want to know what happened. It's okay that it has twists and turns and that it's deceptive at times, if that's the case. 
But uh, yeah, no, I'm a big, big fan of, of knowing, of canon, so to speak. Like, I just want to know what happened. So now, that being said, is Area X actually based on a place you know or maybe have lived or traveled to? Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, you know, it is actually based on a, a place uh, called the St. Mark's Wildlife Refuge in North Florida, where I've hiked this 13-mile trail through all these transitional uh, environments over the last uh, 15 to 20 years. And so I know the setting really, uh, really well. There's even an old lighthouse that's abandoned out there. And uh, there is kind of a creepy feeling, especially when you're going from the pine forest environment to kind of the swampy cypress environment, then you go out into the marsh reeds. Uh, the the what I would call black forest, black water area is really creepy if you're if you're walk if you're hiking alone. There's, there's just a, such a stillness to it that that it's it, it's just you know. And then of course things like uh, the wild boar uh, charging the expedition in annihilation that actually happened to me. Yeah, out there hiking with uh, <laughs> well. Yeah, but see, the thing about that that's weird is that if it's charging from far enough away, which this one was, and I was hiking with somebody, you have an awfully god-awful long time to think about what you're going to do. It's very <laughs> surreal. So this wild, wild boar is charging you, and you're saying to your hiking companion, surrounded by both sides, we just hiked five miles, we can't really outrun it, um, what do you want to do? And then you're talking for like literally like a minute and a half to two minutes while the thing's charging towards you. <laughs> and we finally decided we were just going to face it down because we had no choice. And so I have my little tiny gutting knife, which is great for perforating creatures that have already half gorged you to death. Uh, and then my friend was, who apparently had military training was not giving me much uh, in the way of confidence because he was like taking the walking stick and doing like fake ninja moves with it, which <laughs> just was not cool. It was like, which, which made the boar laugh and, <laughs> And slow down. Which made the board like, ha yeah, right. <laughs> you know, meanwhile, this thing that looks like a huge bloated German shepherd with tusks is ru running at you. And um, and I asked him, you know, he'd been in the military. I said, well, have you ever faced down a wild boar before? And he said, yes. And I said, well, what'd you do? And he said, well, I was in a tank at the time. <laughs> and I was like, thank you. That, that helps a lot. Um, and the one thing that hadn't occurred to us is that pigs can swim. So about uh, 15 <laughs> feet away from us, it veered off and just swam off into the swamp. Uh, which kind of blew our minds because again it was like oh pigs can swim well that that's good <laughs> we've always been so <laughs> focused on them flying come we had thought right right so uh so you know it was actually this kind of it's funny now but at the time we really were like okay this is our last stand with our gutting knife and our stupid walking stick um and I think some of that comes comes through in the book, but just the time we had about it was absolutely absurd. See, that's why because my first thought was I can outrun Rob. <laughs> that's the first thing Did, I was like, I can outrun Rob on this trail. Yeah, does he charge you a lot? Oh, I see. <laughs> no, yeah. yeah. Rob, Rob could work with his non-military training and, and see what he can do, but that's gonna give me a hell of a lead on the boar. Okay, <laughs> to be fair though, um, I've spent uh, a, a, not a considerable, but a, a small amount of time in the wilds of Alaska. Yeah. Um, being terrified kind of almost in retrospect a lot of what's happened uh, in situations because like I didn't realize how potentially dangerous the situation was at the time um, like walking <clears throat> walking along the street to the cabin we were staying in we heard we knew it was an animal and um, it was making almost like a like a mooing almost like a mooing noise but it wasn't a mooing noise it was just like this really yeah. deep weird noise so we wander home and I'm like 11 at the time so I'm kind of carefree and, and stupid, and we get in and telling we're telling my father, you know, what what we heard, just kind of very lightly, lightheartedly, and um, he said, "Yeah, that was a bear." Oh God! <laughs> and it was like if we were walking down a normal gravel road, there was a couple feet of grass to the side of the road, and then like thick, like 
bushes and brush and stuff and it was just right there so yeah um, see that that's not good uh in florida if you see a black bear it's no big deal i mean they're they're fairly scared of you and they're not very aggressive but i would not want to be hiking in alaska and encounter a bear that would be a whole different different thing <laughs> yeah i had to be reminded frequently about just how dangerous like <laughs> things were because we I, I grew up in the suburbs of chicago so like the mm -hmm. the most dangerous animal was like a friend so <laughs> well you know i mean that 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 i i feel sometimes like um a lot of people growing up today get their wildlife education from like laugh out loud cats and and funny <laughs> pictures of animals with cats on facebook and I feel like that could be then go out in the wilderness and and, and encounter the stuff for real. But um, but yeah, sometimes you don't really have a sense of how dangerous the situation is. Like alligators, alligators are not that dangerous. I've I've had to jump over alligators a couple of times, and they're basically like scaly basset hounds. I would I would much rather jump over an alligator than than be charged by a wild boar. Let's put it that way. Well, it's uh, like the worst, like the worst either or game ever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, in best case scenario, I'd rather be charged by a squirrel or a chipmunk. There you go. There, yeah, there it yeah. is. Something you can kick out of the way, you know. But... <laughs> Sorry, that's totally off track. I apologize. <laughs> I have... No, no, no. Actually, sometimes at readings, ask people <laughs> to raise their hand if they've been charged by a woodland creature. <laughs> so I'm always kind of kind of interested. I don't know. Maybe I'll write a book one day. <laughs> the collected. Yeah. Uh... yeah. I have, I have no bear stories now. I feel like totally lucky. What the hell, man? No. Oh, and you've been to Romania. Like, I have. I don't think there are bears. They're, I mean, there are like lots they of have, goats and chickens. They have bears in the north, I think. I've been there a couple of times, but I've never seen a bear. Uh, like, there's got to be a werewolf or something. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, uh, I've seen cheesy vampire memorabilia there for sure, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so back to talking about um, the the trilogy in, in general. Well, for one thing, it's not actually uh, I, you. You rightly kind of like assumed, and I would have assumed too that the, all the same length. Uh, the the next two books are, are seven hundred and eight hundred pages, uh, respectively. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> they're, they're 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 but they are longer. They're they're about ninety five thousand words each. So like uh, not quite twice as long as Annihilation, um, and they are very self contained too. Um, and they kind of take a different perspective on things. The second one's kind of an expedition into the Southern Reach, just like Annihilation is an expedition into Area X. So, Yeah, that was going to be kind of the question, um, whether it was going to continue on in Area X, because uh, uh, Annihilation kind of ended in, in a way where, well, I guess we can't really talk about it, but it, it <laughs> there's us being careful again, but um, it ended in a way that implied that there was a lot more um, potential information uh, to come, uh, but um, yeah, we, I was wondering if it was going to be uh, so. If author if authorities kind of looking a little more at Southern Reach, um, mm -hmm. would acceptance be kind of a convergence of the the two a little bit? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, Annihilation, as we all know, ends with the redacted going to the redacted with the redacted, um, and then you wind up with um, <laughs> Authority and. Um, it's the new director of the Southern Reach coming in, in the aftermath of the the 12th expedition that's that's in annihilation and trying to make sense of it all, and also taking over an agency that's become very dysfunctional over 30 years of not being able to do what it's supposed to set out to do, which is solve this mystery. And so uh, there is Area X because you have to review all of the video from like the first edition X through that, and you get Area X from from various other things. You also find out that some of the members of the expedition from annihilation are not exactly who you thought they were 
Um, and in fact, if you go back uh, to some of the conversations, which are deliberately a little disjointed because some people in the expedition are playing roles, um, you'll have a different take on them after reading Authority and then a very different take after reading the third book. And the third book does actually then alternate between Area X and the Southern Reach and kind of comes to the two styles. Because he's actually kind of, a couple of people have described it to me as being like uh, John Le Carre meets House of Leaves without the footnotes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so it's very much kind of got a spy novel kind of structure, but like with weirdness attached to it, and also a fair amount of absurdity. The director reports to this, the voice, <laughs> and the voice is this guy who apparently is an alcoholic uh, who's working at the Central Intelligence Agency or whatever, and ha- his voice is disguised, but. Every time that the director reports to him, the guy gets mad at him in different ways or wants him to tell <laughs> stupid jokes. or I mean, there's just all this stuff. And, and I, I wish I could say that this is uh, not based on reality, but from my workplace experience <clears throat> and dealing with various agencies, uh, a lot of the stuff that's the most absurd in authority is actually stuff that's, that's very close to real life. So I don't think we could have asked for a better yeah, explanation. I think, all, I think we've all worked in places like that, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I used to work... At- a, well, I probably can't say most of this, but I did used to work at a place where somebody would call up, for example, and say, hey, can you change the law so I can make handguns in my basement? And I can't really go into further <laughs> detail, but I would get calls like that all the time, and I was actually in a position where I could have possibly done that, but um, but decided not to. So, <laughs> I, guess that's, I guess that's a good thing. Thank you for your service. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so I was that's, responsible that's... with the limited power that I had. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so the decision to release this um, as three books um, was it ever a consideration to, to do it as one or is like one big book or was it always three books or did the publisher make that decision? I guess that's like 18 questions, but I'm sure you kind of get the, the gist of. Well, they are very different self-contained novels. In fact, I've had a few friends who read Authority before Annihilation then went back to Annihilation and because they contain completely different secrets, they still are completely effective. If you read them in that order, it's just a different reading experience. So I, I have seen again the Amazon reviews where it's like, Evil publisher is divided one story <laughs> into three. Um, you left us hanging with the biologists, and 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 in book two, um, you're, you're gouging us for that. And um, I don't really understand that, frankly. But it's also kind of weird having a novel out after not having had one out for four years. The whole environment seems <laughs> seems uh, I don't know. People seem angrier somehow. <laughs> um, reviewers seem angrier. It's taken a little bit of a time to, to get used to that, though I am now now used to it and taking it in stride. But um, but yeah, it's it's not a it's not some kind of sneaky publisher ploy, just breaking one story into three bits to, to make more money. They they truly are separate uh, self contained novels. Uh, another another interesting aspect to the release of these books is that they're all happening in the same year. Which, I mean, we've had huge conversations with people about publishers scheduling out like three years in advance for a book. So um, we, we, I, I, I use the example of Chuck Wendig with his, uh, his Miriam Black books that came out, right. uh, um, I think they were all uh, in 2013. And um, I think it was a very successful um, strategy. So was that, was that um, an intentional thing or is it just happened, they happened to come out that way? Well, there were three offers for these books, and uh, the only one that wanted them out in, in the same year was was FSG, and it really appealed to me given the changing nature of, of publishing and and just the way that readers seem to because I guess of ebooks uh, because of ebooks for some reason uh, expect things to happen a little faster. Uh, I also think that there's a part of me that really appreciated it because. You know, it, it means that the, the PR for it and the tour for it and everything is self-contained 
to one year. Mm -hmm. So I think it, it reflects partially the changing nature of publishing, partly a smart ploy on the part of FSG, and um, and I, I don't have any. I think it, I think it's it's working very well so far, and, and people really seem engaged with the book. So. Um, I wouldn't want to do it for every series I ever have uh, come out, but I think it <laughs> works well for this one. <laughs> so, though, I have, yeah, I have to say it's also though, really weird because you know I, I wrote I wrote basically for like eighteen months uh, and then and, and lived like a hermit, and then I came out of the world and basically just did. I've been doing book tour stuff for like six months. And it's just a really strange experience to live like a hermit and then suddenly go out into the world. <laughs> well, yeah, it would definitely be an interesting test to see how um, short release schedules like this go. I mean, Netflix has now proven that we want our TV, you know, 13 and 20 episodes at a time. And it'd be interesting to see how this affects um, publishing to be able not necessarily to get three books in one day, but to get them close enough together that, you know, it, like it feels like one long trip instead of, you know, all right, I spent three days reading this book. And now next year, which would have been a traditional release schedule for something in a series you know, waiting 11 and a half months to get the next bit. Yeah. Um, and actually, the, the 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 thing that kind of sparked uh, talking about, like, binge reading, there was an article in the New York Times that mentioned, and unfortunately, there was, like, this ripple effect of, like, all these other places. Finally, it was like, yeah, binge reading allows you to read this stuff a lot faster and skim stuff and get on to the next one quicker. And um, and, and they were taking the analogy of, of binge watching, um, to some kind of weird extreme because I, I remember like when I binge watched the, the wire, mm -hmm. um, it didn't make it a more superficial experience. Um, it just made it more immersive. And so I hope that that's what this, this helps. I mean, it, I hope it just helps the publishing industry in terms of, you know, it, it's looking for new ways to stabilize and to kind of stop the hemorrhaging. And I think this is one possible way of doing it. Now it's a terrible thing if it means that writers are suddenly on a hamster wheel <laughs> where they're having to churn out books so fast <laughs> that they can hardly see straight afterwards and they're having hallucinations and walking out of the front yard and getting hit by cars. But but you know, if it, if it's something where the writer has enough time to write the books and they just release them very quickly, I, I think it's actually can be a very good thing. All right, so I'm going to try to be careful about how I phrase this next question because I certainly don't mean any offense by it, and I know people sometimes get a little touchy. So, oh dear, violations um, <laughs> getting um, quite a bit of you know what I call mainstream attention for what on its surface really looks like a sci-fi book. So that's the part I was hoping you weren't objecting to. Um, did you envision it kind of crossing out in, into some other genres and getting a lot of uh, you know what I'm calling a main loosely calling mainstream support? Um, well, I mean, FSG is the mainstream imprint, basically, and so that's where they're going to go. And the one thing I've found over my 25-plus years of, of being in this business is the thing you don't want to do is have your publisher go against the thing that they do well. <laughs> uh, you know what I'm saying? It's like, so I, I've had cases where, uh, like, a genre imprint has tried to take a mainstream approach, and it doesn't work well because that's not what they're used to. So. FSG is doing what FSG does well, and they're getting a lot of mainstream attention for this book. The other thing, though, is that they're, they're – and I don't see this division. I mean, I like books from all over the place, and I try not even to talk about genre because this whole genre versus mainstream stuff can just take up so much energy without any kind of – it just doesn't, doesn't, it, it doesn't really – it doesn't really help anything to talk too much about it. But there is also this issue of, like, what is the story arc? And, and in Annihilation – you get the complete story arc of the biologist. You do not get the full story arc necessarily of the mystery. And and part of that, of course, is that there's two more books. So I have the luxury of being able to include that those other parts of the story later. 
but there is a division between some genre and non-genre readers about what it is that you get that's complete at the end of the story. And so I think FSG is a good fit for a, where I'm as, as interested in character, story comes out of character as anything else. And uh, that's not to say the genre imprints aren't, but sometimes it expresses itself a little differently. And, uh, you know, so I, I don't really know, you know, it's not like I'm sitting here going, oh, I want to be a New Yorker and blah, 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 blah. It, it's, it's just that each book has to find its, its ideal audience. And for me, it's always been a mix of genre and non-genre readers. So I actually like what they're doing. You know, there's, they're, they're, I, I don't know. I don't know. That's, it's, it's, it's an interesting question, but, but you know, I, I don't, uh, don't tend to think in those terms. So mostly I'm just happy they're doing what they do best. It totally makes me think of, I don't even know if I have a question here, but um, when I, when I look at books that I enjoy, that I think get it right, and then books that don't get it right, um, it's a matter of, it's almost exactly what you said. It's the story arc of the biologist versus the story arc of the mystery is like, um, what's more prominent in, 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 I mean, it's really a story about a person, like you're saying. So if it, it's not a, it's not a book where if someone said, Oh, you know what? I don't like sci-fi. Would I, would I, should I not read it? I mean, of course you should read it because, you know, um, it's not one of those where, cause there's some people who write specifically to, um, be in that, to be genre and, and, and um, I don't know, is that kind of making sense? I, I'm, I'm with you is what I'm saying. I think more or less. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, um, I. It's it's great in some ways that we have, like a genre section in the bookstore it makes it easier to find certain things. But then there's other ways in which it means that we start talking about books based on certain elements that aren't necessarily like, like I find it interesting to talk about this book in terms of how people perceive nature, for example, and that's not necessarily going to be the way that someone's going to approach this book if they're core genre. They may really be more tuned into the sci-fi element, or some perceived supernatural weird element of it. And so I think that the going cross genre, being able to make that transition is valuable because you get many different views of the same book. And, 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 and I think that uh, you're seeing this more and more. And, and the weird thing is that, you know, there's a lot of people in sci-fi who, who have kind of dumped all over Margaret Atwood um, <laughs> for calling her stuff dystopias and saying science fiction is just giant space squid or whatever the hell she said. Um, but in actual fact, someone like Margaret Atwood has really been very useful because what you see now is you see people who, in the U.S. at least, are marketed as genre, being able to make that transition as well. And it's because there are general readers who are reading Margaret Atwood and thinking, oh, I actually kind of really like this stuff. Where can I find more of it? Uh, and, and 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 so I think that's that's what's interesting to me is is all all writers want to without kind of compromising the core principles find the maximum number of readers that a book can possibly find and I think this is just kind of a reflection of that is where is it best I mean there's books I've written where I would say it's definitely better if this comes out from a genre imprint for whatever reason and and these particular books. Um, I think it's really good I'm with FSG. I have an amazing editor at FSG that has basically said, go with it, has allowed me to, to push and, and really push hard with the second and third books in a way that if I wasn't with a with a mainstream imprint, I, I might not have I might not have pushed as hard to be honest. I might have been too concerned about the sci-fi elements or the or the weird elements. Uh, and in a, in a way it's kind of liberating. Uh, but another book would be a totally different experience. So it, it just depends. All right, that was good. Am stuff. I going to regret saying that? <laughs> <laughs> no, 
no i think it's wonderful and and, and i mean i go back to uh, we i don't want to beat this horse too much but um I go back to, uh, in our conversation about Annihilation, the thing that stuck so strongly with me, and, and I'm assuming it was absolutely intentional, was um, the, the biologist herself and her kind of relation with um, ecosystems um, as a kid versus in, in this Area X kind of experience and how that, to me, I felt like there was a big change in everything, so... Like that was yeah, good. no, and 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 um, one thing that kind of uh, frustrates me sometimes is the way that in science fiction novels and in real novel, re- realistic novels or or realism, uh, nature is portrayed. I mean, you either have kind of anthropomorphized kind of folktale type things, or you have, uh, you know, we're stewards of the earth or whatever else. But there, there, there's there's less of an element of understanding just how tied we are to this world, in part because we have such a virtual world in front of us now that we sometimes don't realize. Uh, and, and so, yeah, that, that's really important. Um, I actually myself wanted to be a marine biologist at one point until I realized I just wanted to look in tidal pools and didn't really want to do the science. <laughs> um, some of the stuff that, that's in there is actually very autobiographical and just transferred. And, of course, when you transfer it, it totally transforms it. But, you know, I, I grew up uh, in Gainesville, Florida after coming back from Fiji, and we had an old swimming pool that was overgrown that was like a, its own ecosystem. Um, I did at one point... Um, have an experience where I was out on a reef at, at Fiji uh, Islands uh, around the age of eight and uh, was completely disoriented and turned around, didn't know where I was, didn't know which way the shore was. And basically there was this compass in front of me, which was this phosphorescent huge starfish on the reef that pretty much allowed me to figure out where I was. Um, so some of the things that are in the book are, are, are very personal to me in terms of the nature aspect too. It, I think it really comes through that way for sure. Um, I'm going to violently shift gears here. I hope that's okay with you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, sure. Just because, why not? Um, <laughs> so in addition to, uh, we just want to talk a little bit about some of the other stuff that you do as well. Um, mm-hmm. So nonfiction stuff, um, there, there, you've got a ton of stuff you do in the nonfiction realm as well. Um, so stuff with uh, the steampunk and other things like that that you do, the Illustrated Guide to the World of Imagined Airships, Corsets, Goggles, and Mad Scientists, those types of things. Uh, how does that how does it compare to doing fiction? Or do you kind of like just dip your toes in whatever you're feeling at the time? Or what's that feel well, like? Well, I mean, uh, I've got kind of a – Abrams Image did that book, and I've got kind of a special relationship with them now where we just – I mean, we really just work well together. And, um, you know, my mom's my mom's an artist. I've always been a very visual person. And so the you know when it when when the steampunk Bible kind of dropped into my lap, that was the start of being able to do coffee table books. And there's something really cool about being able to combine image and text in that way that 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 really satisfies me uh, in a different way creatively than the fiction does. The fiction is always the most personal thing, uh, but getting to do the steampunk Bible and as someone from kind of outside the steampunk world, being able to do kind of a journalistic you know looking at it and seeing what it was and kind of talking about it that was really interesting. And then uh, they came back to me and said, how about doing an illustrated writing book? And so I wound up doing this thing called uh, Wonder Book, which was out late last year, uh, the Illustrated Guide to Creating Imaginative Fiction. And it's the world's first fully illustrated writing book with 300 uh, full-color images, uh, diagrams and charts and illustrations replacing instructional text. Actually tested it out at various workshops, including Shared Worlds, this teen uh, sci-fi fantasy writing camp that I helped run uh, in uh, Wofford, uh, at Wofford College in, in South Carolina. And um, and so there's there's a very pleasing aspect to me to be able to do a visual element to a book. 
just because it, it's just it's just like second nature. I mean, I grew up around studios and, and things like that, and um, but it's it's a different kind of it's a different kind of feeling. It's almost like sometimes it's almost like solving a mathematical equation or something, hmm. whereas the other stuff is a little more. It's just a different feel to it. it. It comes from a more subconscious kind of instinctual place. So, so the, that's the way I, I look at it. It's like sometimes someone will come to us with an idea for an anthology that they want us to do, and and, and my wife and I will be like, well, you know, what what makes this unique? Why is this an interesting project? What are we going to learn from it? Um, you almost become a detective at times on some of these projects, tra- tra- tracking down stories in the states. And so there's kind of a satisfying aspect in that way too. I mean, one day you're dealing with some total jerk who's telling you that that the the story you want is is uh impossible to get because the one person who runs the estate is in a coma until they either die or wake up they can't assign their rights the next year you're explaining the internet to monks on an island off the coast of spain who own the the ebook rights to some story i mean it, it's, it's nuts um so so i can't say that that doesn't appeal either because there is this aspect of mystery and tracking things down that that, that appeals as well I guess my follow-up is it occurred to me um, recently that um, because you you've always been um, on a radar a bit, but like you said, um, you haven't had a, a novel out in a while, and usually we go for novels that are uh, recently or about about to be released. Um, but you, uh, we actually talked about you on one of our first episodes ever. When uh, I can't remember exactly what it was, it was something we found um, through I think Twitter. Someone had a link to. I, I, and I could be totally wrong, and it might not have been you, but I think it was. Um, talking about really uh, unconventional horror stories or unconventional book styles or something like that. And um, we use it as a topic on our podcast. And then we mentioned that you did the steampunk Bible, and that's kind of how we. Um, that's the first time your name kind of came across the podcast. So. Yeah, one of my first um, books was City of Saints and Mad Men, which was a collection of related stories about this uh, uh, imaginary fantastical city of Ambergris, which is maybe what you're talking about because. It also included art. They were like found objects from the city, uh, from like seven or eight different artists, and it was also fairly unique in that <laughs> it was during the time when uh, POD was first becoming established, and I had an mm. uh, independent publisher, and so we had all these illustrations. Yet you were using print-on-demand technology, and so I had to do things like have captions that said, you know, "fire burned photograph recovered from whatever," just because we knew the quality was going to be so shitty. Um, and so, so the first book that I ever ever was was really known for was this book that that where we actually used the constraints of POD uh, for us in, in in our defense, so to speak, uh, and that's really what kind of launched me. But it was kind of experimental in that there were all different types of stories, and they interlinked linked in kind of odd ways, and there were all these illustrations, and and that that's kind of where the illustrated portion came from too. Is is that first book? So that may, that may be what you're talking about. I don't know. Possibly, yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah. It, it's uh we've had a we've had a very long silent relationship with you. It's kind of weird, staring at you from across the room. We've also interviewed a lot of my favorite authors. I mean, Brian Evanson is is a huge favorite of mine and a, and a very good friend of mine. So that man, um, can I can I share something? And I might cut this because it's kind of personal. But um, uh, um, the first time we interviewed him. Uh, he was very gracious to you know he didn't know anything about us I don't think and we were he he was in the uh, the warmed and bound uh, anthology had a story in that and we were re- interviewing a bunch of people from that and um, he was super nice and cordial and oh yeah you know I'll do an interview and we set up a time and and actually there was a miscommunication so we had to reschedule and he, again super nice the whole time um, and then we get him on the call and he's like oh you know I'm sorry if my voice sounds a little weird I had I just got out of the hospital I had my lung collapsed. 
God, I know, yeah. And we're like, oh, uh, <laughs> are you sure this is a good time? Like, <laughs> yeah. Super nice. And then um, the next time we reviewed him or interviewed him was right after Lords of Salem came out. And um, yeah. yeah, and uh, he's like, oh, you know, uh, setting up the time to interview and everything. He's like, uh, yeah, you know, I can do this day. Um, but I just had a baby last week or something like that. So every time we, <laughs> there's been some major uh, life situation going on with him, but he's still super gracious with his time and just one of the most intelligent, awesome people. No, no, he really is, and I and I love the way that he flits back and forth between like really pop culture type stuff and 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 what you might call, if you had to, very serious lit, um, and 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 navigates that so gracefully. We actually first met over <laughs> a book publisher who was screwing us both over. Um, <laughs> it was it was my it was going to be my first collection, and and unfortunately the publisher was having an affair with a woman who was the book binder and like the book printer for them. And she was a poet who had an issue with the titles in the TOC of my collection. She wanted to change them because she she thought that they didn't read very well as like fragmented lines of poetry. That that's how ridiculous it was. And Brian was having similar problems, and so we kind of um, we communicated first over this this publisher who wound up going out of business, um, and then stayed in touch after that. And uh, then he caught on with Dark Horse, where he did an Aliens novel, and at the time I had just become a full-time writer, and he got me a gig uh, doing a novel set in the Predator universe. Mm-hmm, yeah. And uh, and then it just kind of like, we, we wound up being with the same publishers a lot, and uh, and became good friends during during all of this. But uh, but he, he definitely is someone who I'd say is also an influence on, on Annihilation and, and the other novels because of, especially like in Authority, because... He, he has this really kind of <laughs> sneaky sense of humor. Like, the stories can be really odd, but sometimes there's this undercurrent of humor in them or the absurd. And uh, he told me this great story about how there's certain stories that he'll read, like in a regular bookstore, that'll get great laughs. But if he reads them on a college campus, the grad students are just, like, so uptight about this is supposed to be literature <laughs> that they won't laugh at all, and he's really afraid that he's tanked, but really it's just they're afraid to laugh, you know? So it's quite interesting. All right, so authority is out in June. Acceptance is out in September. Those are put to bed, I'm assuming, right? They're with the publisher at this point. Uh, I'm I'm doing some final copy edits on acceptance. Uh, FSG's been really good about letting me make uh, some final little tweaks. But yeah, they're pretty much they're pretty much put to bed. And authority comes out May 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 sixth. Hey, sorry, I'm and, going. Uh, you got to get your publisher to change that on their website because we did it. Those, those <laughs> bastards. Maybe they've changed something. They haven't told me, but but yeah, it's, it's pretty uh, aggressive schedule. And um, for the um, Authority tour will actually be in Boston and um, and at Brown in Rhode Island and uh, some other places in the in the north uh, northeast. So. Oh, you're gonna be partying with uh, Evanson when you're at Brown. That's right, because <laughs> he's a party animal. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> so those are uh, just about ready. Um, what are you working on next? Uh, well, the end of the year, we have, I think, a very really interesting project, uh, which is kind of a follow-up to the uh, Steampunk Bible. It's called the Steampunk User's Manual. Uh, but we're actually kind of just charting, like, cutting-edge retrofuturism with the Steampunk label attached to it as kind of a signifier. But we did some really cool things, like, um, I thought it would be really neat to have a crafts book with stuff that you can actually do. Uh, so, so for example, we got a bunch of scientists together to to figure out how you would make a 300 foot tall moving uh, people carrying a steampunk penguin. 
and so there's instructions in there for how to do that if, if you have the materials and the time, uh, <laughs> along with the scale model in a diorama that's, I think, fairly remarkable um, and that you can't tell from the pictures is actually like the equivalent of uh, Stonehenge in, um, in the Spinal Tap movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, um, and and then there's some projects you can do too, but you know I thought do a high a, a kind of a high end crafts book with stuff you can do, but then these totally nuts projects that are just off the off the charts uh, impossible to do unless you have like <laughs> a small country behind you, and uh, so it's turning out really really nicely. Uh, and and one of the one of the things I love about it is just this conversation between these these very serious scientists and. Whatnot, you know, talking about well, you couldn't do that, and you know, if you if you have if you have wings on it, you can't do that, blah blah blah, and you got to worry <laughs> about the feet, and you know, blah blah blah. It's, it's just it's just it's it's pretty funny. Uh, and then I've actually kind of taken a break from from writing novels, but I do have uh, two or three novels in the works that I'll uh, that I'll be be doing as, as well. And uh, basically, I'm just touring all year. So I do have one called The Book Murderer, which uh, I'm 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 not sure if I should see this thing uh, be published or not because it basically uh, fictionalizes the most absurd publishing experiences I've had over the last uh, 30 <laughs> years uh, and everything I've ever seen on back channels about the book industry so um, hopefully like suitably fictionalized <laughs> right yeah. it's the book I'll publish when I, I realize that my career is over and, and this is the last thing um, so, uh, so there's I, that can I tell you something really quickly that I've been telling people yeah. lately um, doing a, a, a book review podcast and, and interviewing authors, I, I was telling Livius lately that um, the final episode that we that we post, if we ever <laughs> end the podcast, is going to be all of that audio that I never deleted, that <laughs> for one reason or another had to get removed from the episode. Yeah. It's like yeah. a big five hour long, just like, oh my god, I can't believe they did this. Is what. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I, I think a lot of us have that stuff and that that idea that okay, well, when this is over, we'll just we'll just expel it all like a sea cucumber expelling all its internal organs. You know, it's like, um, but yeah, yeah. So the, yeah, the final the final kind of purge, right? <laughs> um, yeah, because what better punctuation, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, just um, go out in a blaze of glory. Really quick, uh, are you in Chicago at all for touring or no? Uh, I might be for the third leg starting in September. I'm not sure yet. Um, it looks like I'm going to be in England in August and then uh, come back. And I just don't know uh, what's what's going to happen. I'm, I'm hoping. I'm, I'm really hoping I'll hit Chicago and Minneapolis uh, in the fall. So we'll keep an eye on the website then. Um, so before we uh, say goodnight, um, because it's like practically tomorrow, I think where you are. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to mention or plug that we haven't uh, brought up already? Um, just the, uh, you know, that if you're, if, if you're listening and you're the parent of a teenager who's uh, 13 to 17 or you are a teenager 13 to 17 and you're interested in science fiction and fantasy or just writing in general, check out the Shared Worlds uh, website. It's this great teen sci-fi fantasy writing camp uh, that we run out of uh, Spartanburg and all these great professional writers come to it and help teach and basically you can get a professional critique you, you'll actually be in groups where you build a world of your own the first week and then you write in it and uh, you, all you have to do is google shared worlds and you'll get to the get to the website and uh, we have i think now 60 64 students a year and they come from all over the country uh and all over the world actually uh and uh it's 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 it's, it's really a lot of fun so that's awesome 
All right, Jeff, thank you once again for taking uh, taking time out again late at night because we don't care what time zone people are in when we schedule these things, apparently. So thanks again for your time. Thank you very much. All right, once again, huge thanks to Jeff Vandermeer for taking uh, uh, time out of his uh, busy promotion schedule and for staying up so late to uh, to do a little recording with us. It was great to uh, finally get him on and talk about some of his stuff. Yeah, I feel really bad because first off, I mostly expect people to be west of us for some reason. So because a lot of the people we have dealings with, it's always much earlier for them. <laughs> so yeah, I definitely appreciate him being up till the you know wee hours of the morning to do this. Second of all, dude, you know, shared worlds. I pulled this up while he was talking about. It. This looks pretty cool, man. It's uh, we're we're just outside the range because it's for teen writers. Yeah, um, so you it. and I do not qualify for this, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's people teaching teens about writing in like the kind of fantasy genres, which you have to imagine has got to be cool, especially if you if it's aimed at like the, you know, kind of mid teens, like by 17 or 18, meh. But, you know, like a 13 year old to be able to immerse them in creating worlds of fantasy. Yeah, like that's pretty goddamn cool. And much like anything else you do with kids, you got to give them something they're they're interested in, you know, so, you know, getting like a 15 year old to be interested in, you know, doing the, the air quotes, you know, literature might be a tough sell. Uh, give them, you know, some orcs and a, you know, and, and a laser gun, and you can have something there. So I think it's actually a pretty, pretty cool program. Yeah, and the thing about that too is, like, you're, you're teaching them in a way that might be more approachable, but it, it also might just be, you know, what they, you know, deep down love. But at the same time, the skills you learn writing science fiction or fantasy or other genres it, it apply everywhere. So, yep. um, I mean, in in outside of writing, like the skills that you learn about language and and you know composition and everything apply everywhere in life so that's that's a really um that's a really cool thing to be doing dude maybe if you shaved your beard you could sneak into this program i do have quite the baby face but that's just not gonna happen (laughs) all right next up we're talking about a comic book yeah how long ago did we say we were gonna do a comic book um you mentioned this before do you remember we were like oh we should do a comic book that doesn't had, sound familiar at all. You know, maybe we talked about it off the air. I think that it was, um, oh, if I could think of the guy's name, it'd be perfect. Warren Ellis. I think we were at one point discussing reviewing Warren Ellis. Yeah, that could be. Um, well, I know that, that Christopher Moore had that um, Griff uh, graphic That's novel. That's what it was, yeah. 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 So, it wasn't very good. Nah, it wasn't. I mean, yeah. he. he <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's my review. <laughs> I think we kind of we danced around that one a little bit. I think we were kind of nice to it, but um, uh, he's he's the kind of a guy where you read it and you build it in your mind. That's how I feel about it. You, you don't want a prepackaged image. Well, let's hope that Frank Bills Crow um, fares better than that. That's right. And um, actually, the tie-in, the cool tie-in here is. Uh, we just got done interviewing Jeff Vandermeer. Uh, Annihilation is the book we just reviewed. It's on FSG, um, which is the the same publisher who put out uh, um, Crimes in Southern Indiana and Donnie Brook, the uh, the two books uh, that that Frank Bill came out with. So uh, nice tie in there. It's perfect. It's almost like we how, did it on purpose. How hard was it just for you to say Donnie Brook with an R? Did in you there? hear me like <laughs> like over pronouncing it, Donnie Brook? <laughs> That's like I can't say someone bought a um, books. It always comes out booked. Oh god. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. 
All right, so without further ado, um, here's the synopsis for The Crow, Pestilence, as penned by Frank Bill. Juarez, Mexico. A young boxer, Salvador, refuses to take a fall, but has no problem taking a vicious drug gang's payoff. When they take their lethal revenge on Salvador and his family, he returns as The Crow, in search of vengeance and forgiveness. That's from the Amazon page for the digital edition of The Crow Pestilence, which someone at IDW was nice enough to send us to, to look at. So uh, uh, I, I can't imagine we're going to be very good at this since neither you nor I have any real legit experience with comic books. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure we're, we're not going to be able to talk about like, yeah, like a comic book reviewer would be. But, you know, it is a story after all. Dude, comic book people, like, they talk about, like, you know, obviously the story, and then there's the art, but then there's, like, the coloring of the art mm-hmm. is, like, a whole separate thing. I was reading a, a review on a comic just to get kind of an idea of what kind of things they talk about. Just, it's very weird. Yeah. You know, if we had some forethought, we would have invited someone who knows something about comic books on, but... Um, yeah, forethought. Whatever. Mm. whatever. One of these days, we'll have to have some forethought to think of some forethought. That's the thing. Yeah, we have to remember to plan ahead. That's the yes. problem. <laughs> um, so, at any rate, this is the umpteenth um, reiteration of The Crow as um, pretty much anybody who's kind of been wronged um, can become The Crow. I, I'm not really sure. My only exposure to Crow before this was the uh, movie 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first Crow movie. I know they went on to do a TV series and I think two subsequent films, but... Um, yeah, basically, if, if if enough shitty things happen to you, you can in death become the crow. So we pick up uh, at the beginning with Salvador, who's a boxer, who's working for some type of, I don't know, Mexican mafia. Basically, he's just paid to take falls so they could win the money in the, the gambling pools, the, the betting. Mm-hmm. And he opts to um, not only not take the fall, to bet on himself and steal as much money as he can and go on the run. Which is more or less Bruce Willis's storyline in the movie Pulp Fiction. You know, now that you say that. Did I just blow your mind? Yeah, I didn't really think about that. But yeah, that, that is that is very similar. But you know what? Here's the whole thing. I imagine if you're in that kind of position, that kind of thing has to happen more frequently than, you know. <laughs> and there's really not a lot of, there's not a giant variety of things that can happen to you if you're a boxer. It's basically like either someone pays you to take a fall or you're just good at a, being a boxer or you suck at being a boxer. Yeah, you and I would not do well as boxers. Uh, no, I wouldn't even do, I don't even know if I'd do very well watching boxing, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> So the, um, the, the guy uh, catches Salvador and his family, the, the head of the, the you know, mafia thing, and uh, does really terrible stuff. Like, this is not, a, uh, this is not a, a comic book for, like, young adults. I mean, you know, for, for I guess, the youth, adult, whatever it is, you know, that, like, 13 to 17 market. I mean, there's, like, some, some fairly brutal rape and stuff that goes on there. Yeah, kind of a, an unbalanced reaction i think to the 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 betrayal but i mean the the whole idea is it has to be like a profound um like wrong that mm-hmm. you know that the crow will you know kind of interfere intercede and you know let you set things straight but yeah really rough, wait a minute rough stuff. wait 
Wait a minute. Did you just say unbalanced? The reaction? The yeah. punishment? Yeah. yeah. See, that's where you and I are on different pages, too. So if I... Just think of some of the things that I've wished upon other people or actually <laughs> said I wanted to do to other people for far less than them ripping me off of, you know, whatever, I don't know, like $100,000 or whatever Salvador made away with. Or the difference is you didn't actually do those things. No, no, I didn't. But it's because I'm lazy, not because I didn't want to. It's too much work. <laughs> so if... All right, so if, if the circumstances were different you and someone robbed you of $100,000... You would rape and kill their wife. <laughs> I would. I would never admit to that in public. But right. you know, I'm something just bad to happened. Something bad happened to somebody that won a podcast of the year award ahead of us. Mm, you know, mm. some might think that would be unbalanced too if they're going to be all moralistic and righteous like you are. I, I don't even think I'm that moralistic or righteous. <laughs> I'm just not a an animal. Yeah. All right. Well, apparently I'm an animal, not a crow, though. It'd be something else. Um, so, so yeah, so Salvador becomes the crow, and uh, you know starts to seek his uh, his revenge. I don't know how much else we could say about it. I mean, total comic book length is twenty three pages. Um, what I found kind of difficult is that we even when we read a short story that's this length, there's kind of it. it uh, there's an ending, you know, like you finished. Uh, mm-hmm. a story typically if the story is written well you feel like you you got some reward out of it um the the problem with comics is it's one big story that's kind of you know eked out over you know months and months and for me that kind of reading like i turned last page i was like what what where oh man i gotta wait for issue number two and now i gotta wait a month to get another little snippet of what happens to salvador so. yeah it is a weird medium especially considering like um what we're used to it's it's a different approach. Like if I were to read comic books, I'd wait until the entire um, story arc was available, like in one of those omnibus editions or something like that. Mm-hmm. But um, for some people, that's their thing, and they like to like. But then the thing is, they're not. It's not like people just read one comic book every month. They have like, they're like f- ten to fifteen different storylines they follow, um, and that's you know that's that's just how they go. It's kind of interesting. I will say from the few other comics I picked up over recent years, just because somebody said something good about it, or at one point I read some of the Sandman, like the graphic novels, is that this was um, far less wordy than I expected it to be. It was very, very concise and very sparse in its its you know actual language, which I guess is kind of nice because you've got that whole thing for Frank Bill, and I'm not you know speaking for the man, but I imagine it has to be interesting because you don't have to give a description of anything. The description really needs to be taken care of by the artist so you can use very little in the way of language and it's not nearly as wordy as I would have expected or as I've seen in some of the other comic books with these kind of long you know in, into inner monologues for the the main character everything was very very short bursts yeah at the same time he needed to get the origin story done in one ep- in one issue mm-hmm. so yeah it had to be like really tight as well just to get that done yeah. so that the rest of it is just like how the vengeance takes place and stuff. Yeah, and I'm not complaining about it. I thought it was kind of interesting. And, you know, uh, I, I kind of wonder for somebody who's used to writing longer form fiction, it's, is that easier? Is, is it harder? Like how you, you know, how that process works differently from writing something that we would normally read or review. That's a good point. Good thinking. Mm-hmm. 
So um, that's available. You can pick that up on Amazon for your, um, it says Kindle, but yeah, for any of your tablet devices, you definitely want to read this on a larger tablet. Um, I made the mistake of trying to read it on a seven inch tablet, which um, it caused some issues because I had to kind of zoom in to read all the text and these comics don't zoom very well. You know what I mean? It's kind of hard because you zoom and then you have to like unzoom and like scroll over to see the next panel. So right. if you're reading this on an iPad that, that or a 10 inch, you know, Android tablet, that would probably be the ideal size. But yeah, definitely don't, don't try to read this on your four and a half inch phone. And to be fair too, like we got a preview PDF from the publisher. And if you have like, have you ever read them in those like comic book readers where like you tap and it goes to the next like panel, like it jumps from panel to panel. Does it really do that? No, I haven't. Mm -hmm. There's, um, yeah, when you're reading comic books in like a specific reader and it's in the right format and everything, it doesn't just like kind of once you, when you go to the next thing, it it takes you to the next panel or a couple of panels so that what you're seeing is like, sequentially so you're really just kind of isn't even like looking at pages it's just looking at like the next bit the next bit the next bit well i didn't think about that that's kind of cool yeah huh i may have to check out a comic book that way just to see what that's like yeah absolutely so all in all good to see frank bill flexing some different muscles if you ask me um kind of like livius was saying earlier um we've seen him write the uh the southern indiana kind of small town uh situation so watching you know going into uh boxing and traveling kind of a little bit more of the united states and and mexico and stuff is going to be interesting to see how he writes that and um trying to find that frank bill flair in there so i'm excited to uh to to kind of keep reading and see how he does the guy cool part is he gets to play with um you know fantastical violence if, if that's the way it goes you know what i mean yeah. Well, his other stuff had to stay very down to earth and realistic, but like the crow's got like powers, so like superhuman. Yeah, so it'd be kind of interesting to see, you know, squeezing someone's head like a pimple, that kind of thing. Getting his hand shot, like a bullet shot through his hand, and then it heals up, like in the movie. Yeah, yeah, I don't remember the movie that well. What? It was like twenty years ago, man. I mean, but you, I did see it. You so. you haven't watched it since it came out? No. Wow. All right. I'm pretty much a one viewing guy with a, a handful of, of exceptions. I'm a big rewatcher. Mm-hmm. All, right. All right. Speaking of watching movies, we did mention at the top of the episode that we're going to be talking a little bit about Pablo de Stair's, um A Public Ransom. Uh, you know, apologies to Matt Damon. We ran out of time to have him on the show. Uh, it's uh, We ran a little longer, so we are going to bump that to our next episode. So uh, if you'd like, Google A Public Ransom. You can watch it and kind of, uh, you know, review it along with us as you listen. Um, but, yeah, we're definitely going to cover that next time as well as, uh, you know, I don't want to say what our next episode is. <laughs> That's all right. We can keep it a secret. Yeah, well, because we're 95 percent sure what we're doing on our next episode. We're not quite 100 percent yet. So uh, there's one way to find out, though. Tune in next week for another edition of Booked. I'm Livia Snudden. And I'm Rebels, And keep reading. <laughs>